Cinema Duel, a podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around the theme of our choosing. Welcome back to the podcast, Chris. It has hey. uh, it's been a minute. Yeah, uh, I apparently switched off and gave my COVID to you, so uh, I know you are slowly in recovery. But uh, I apologize. Didn't know that it was transmissible. <laughs> <laughs> via podcasting you know, someone should tell trump right away i'm sure he'll get some kleenex or i, some I was gonna say i really really don't wanna, really don't want to be expounding on uh covid transmit how covid transmits on this podcast i don't want to attract that kind of audience um it is the season uh is the horror season the spooktober the hooptober various horror various uh metaphor season that we always do around this time of year and you and dan uh have been doing your hooptober marathons and so we thought for this episode to exercise the demons uh of watching that many movies we would bring dan morris back onto the podcast dan how are you sir i'm doing well i'm i'm gunning to uh be the most um per- guest on this show i'm be- i'm gunning for jeremy i'm i'm gonna take over jeremy's spot I, I can I can feel it now. Um, twice in a year. <laughs> I think I think at this point are we is Dan tied with Jeremy? He might be. I will insert a clip uh, in the edit of me having done the math on that, but uh, I have COVID brain, so I can't really do that right now. <laughs> Editor John breaking in here for a second. As it was requested, I've done the numbers on this, and Jeremy and Dan both have three episodes apiece as of this recording. Also should be noted, Eric also has three. Uh, I don't know if he's competitive like the other two, but there you go. Yeah, folks, this episode may get a little loopy. We're going to try and, despite the fact we're talking about three films, we're going to try and keep it keep it brief so Mr. Petcow can uh, get his rest. And Dan and I can go back to watching more <laughs> horror movies because yeah, I've got four gotta, left to do. <laughs> I got to, oh man, uh, this month has not been great for me uh, and I've slacked off a little on watching my horror movies but i'm trying to catch up i'm i'm gonna get to 31 i'm at least gonna get to 31 so it's not gonna be like last year when i did 50 in a month which i'm grateful that that's not happening this year (laughs) thankfully hopefully quality over quantity dan hopefully quality over. i think so this year Although, look, I'm not going to cause it as a recommendation, but I just finished watching Toby Hooper's Crocodile, and my quality ratio has dipped. <laughs> Again. There, I love Toby Hooper, but there's a period where it's just like, you can kind of tell the gas went out of the tank. There's some. <laughs> I, I, I saw The Mangler this month, which there's parts of it I like, but for the most part, I wasn't. I'm like, this is a little disappointing. But I have a whole essay about that on Cinema Duel's website. So if you want to read that, go yes. ahead. Please, I, I highly recommend that uh, folks go to cinemaduel.com to keep up with uh, the slightly uh, flagging, but still going to still gonna happen, uh, reviews for both Chris and Dan. Uh, what's funny is that, although I'm not, this is not something that I've done myself uh, with this latest round of sickness, I actually have been like watching an insane amount of movies. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> like I could almost do my own. Uh, though I very much could not, uh, cognitively speaking. Um, but so in, in the, in the, in the past times we've, we've sometimes come up with, uh, you know, particular themes or what are like some sub themes within, uh, the scope of the movies that Chris has been watching. Uh, I think last year was hammer. Um, and this time around, uh, the theme is, uh, whatever overlaps between both and Chris and Dan's, uh, <laughs> movies, uh, and there might actually be some interesting, 
uh, thematic connections between at least two of our movies. Um, but it really just was, we need to make yeah. sure that we don't kill our two co-hosts yeah. by making them watch more movies than necessary. Yeah. We uh, lucked out and without giving away one of the movies originally, uh, Dan and I had two on our list and then Dan was like, yeah, but this one, why don't you watch this one? Because it covers the same. We, it, as everyone knows, October every year, there are a number of requirements you have to hit. Uh, yeah. in, in addition to the marathon and I don't think we're spoiling anything by saying Dan's recommendation turned out probably by a large margin to be the best film of the three and also tied together um, <laughs> quite a lot of parallels. So it, this could be a little bit of an eat the rich episode, kind of, so to speak. Uh, but we'll get into that yeah. when we talk about our films. I'd go for that. I, yeah. I would agree with that. Except with no, one notable exception of eat a boy scout. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Potentially. <laughs> but let's not delay that uh that that spoiler any longer why don't we talk about our first movie for the episode which is the lair of the white worm John Thompson went a fishing a fishing in the wind. he caught a fish up on his hook because looked mighty queer now what the kind of fish it was John Dumpton couldn't tell but he didn't like the look of it so he threw it down a well Okay, so the first movie we're going to talk about today is Ken Russell's 1988 adaptation of Bram Stoker's The Lair of the White Worm. Uh, Bram Stoker, vampiric references, was part of the requirements, as was watching um, a number of films, either by, I believe it was Hitchcock, Ken Russell, Brian De Palma, uh, Benson and Moorhead, and who... Oh, and Wes Craven, which yeah. I should have remembered, <laughs> considering what we're going to be talking about next. Uh, right. So this fit a couple of uh, requirements for me, uh, which is something that I try to do every time I build these lists together. Um, ostensibly, what this is about... Um, is about a uh, a folkloric legend of something called uh, the Dampton Worm uh, that was kind of like a a, a worm in the WYRM sense, more dragon than anything else, uh, which terrorized. Um, the uh, Derbyshire uh, locals uh, for years and years and then was put to death, severed into, bisected, if you will, uh, by the Lord Dampton at that time. Uh, now it is many, many years later. We are firmly in the 20th century and uh, there are a couple, Mary and Eve, they are sisters that run a small bed and breakfast um, and on the grounds they have an archaeologist played wonderfully by a foppish-haired um, Peter Capaldi, borrowing Hugh Grant's hair from all of his 90 Rom Coms, uh, where he digs up an ancient skull uh, that looks to be the skull of the aforementioned worm. At the same time, uh, the uh, Lady Sylvia, who uh, lives in this huge mansion off to the side of Derbyshire, returns uh, and people start dying mysteriously. Could the two be connected? Uh, will Hugh Grant ever get his hair back from Peter Capaldi? All of these things are answered in what, for me, was the film that finally clued me into Ken Russell's madness. Uh, so that's where I want to kick off to you guys. Um, I don't know what your experience was with Ken Russell prior to this. I think now at this point we had all seen The Devils uh, because John and I are avowed um, Oliver Reed-like stands. Uh, so just to see him in something as yeah. bawdy as that. Other than that, I think I had seen um, I had seen Gothic, like half of Gothic once. Um, I had seen Tommy just because I'm a huge Who fan. Um, but this was fine. Finally, the film that like 
clicked in my brain and went, oh, this is what Ken Russell is all about. So I wanted to talk to you guys first, just general impressions of what you thought of the film. And and does Ken Russell make sense <laughs> to you guys at any point now, now that we've had a little bit more of his films under our belts? I have a feeling that Dan may actually have some real thoughts and opinions on this. So I'll go first so that you can take up more time here. But my, uh, as I mentioned uh, in last month's episode with Eric, that I finally got around to watching The the Devils. And that's my only reference point for Ken Russell. And that is a movie that sort of hits the historical drama um, with the Oliver Reed commanding performance. It does that so amazingly well. And then also there's this like, there's this other thread of just the insane debauchery and uh, perverse transgressive bit to it, right? Especially in the end. And what I, <clears throat> I had assumed coming out of that movie that like, this is what this guy does is this guy does huge epic movies that are also just entirely filled with filth and coming into this movie where it's like, well, we have all the filth, but we're not as, con- this isn't like historical drama piece. This, the, the, the thing that threw me off and I'm wondering if it's enlightening for either of the two of you, if you've seen more of his movies is what, what we're committed to here is the filth. We're not committed to, uh, you know, big sweeping stories of politics and religion and what have you, where we, we want to see them titties. Uh, that, that, that was my takeaway. <laughs> that was my big takeaway coming out of this movie. <laughs> Dan. <laughs> so <laughs> big titties. Um, so I've only ever seen this, the devils, and parts of Tommy. So I have a bit of an idea of Ken Russell, and I feel like he's a director that is a blind spot for me. But in reading and doing a little research on this movie, the great British critic Mark Kermode uh describes Ken Russell as basically that he was a director who proved that British cinema, which we typically when we think of British cinema, it's either like little, these small kind of comedies, like say the full Monty or uh, waking Ned divine, those kind of movies or kitchen sink re- realism. Like, Oh God, what's his name? Ken. Oh, like Ken Loach or that. Uh, yeah. Not, Ken Loach, yeah. that kind of thing. Or Mike Lee. And here's Ken Russell. Who's making these very flamboyant movies. And I think that's a re- really great, like Fellini. Uh, and that's what that's from Mark Kermode. I'm not going to take that quote from him. Far wiser critic than I am. Uh, <laughs> but he these movies are very flamboyant. And I would actually argue with you, John, that this movie, I, I had a lot of fun with this movie. I didn't think it was the best of the bunch we're talking today, but I had a lot of fun. I thought there was a lot in it about British history. Um, there was a lot about the hypocrisy of the of the church or, you know, the idea that the church was the sole church in England and time back into Britain's history before Ro- the Romans came in to conquer the, you know, that there was a prehistory before Rome conquered the British Isles. Um, I thought there was a lot in here. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I liked Hugh Grant as just sort of a stiff upper lip kind of British military guy that's just like, I'm going to conquer this worm. Uh, spoiler for anyone who's ever seen this, he probably doesn't. Uh <laughs> Um, Peter Capaldi with, as I told a friend, very delicious hair, very floppy, very wonderful. I love his hair in this movie. I, I don't think we're 
I think a lot of this conversation may be centered around Peter Capaldi's amazing hair in this film, uh, along with the filth. But it, it's such a fun movie. Um, I put this in my review on Letterboxd that, God, I wish an A24 horror film was like this, because as much as I like quiet art house horror movies... I could also use more flamboyant horror movies in today's age. We could definitely, I feel like we could definitely use that in the horror ecosystem when making movies. Yeah. I, I, I got to agree, Dan. And I I think we're going to be very closely aligned on all of these, these movies. The thing that really kicked it for me here was Russell is not super concerned with story. He's not super concerned with kind of narrative, um, which is kind of what a lot of English film up until the point of the 70s, you know, we're really concerned with. He is extremely flamboyant. I hesitate to use the word camp because I, I think camp brings out kind of a sense of a sense of um of unintended kind of fun. And I think what's really interesting is as as high melodrama and camp as this is, it's all very intentional. I think Russell is, if, if anything, this may seem weird to say, I think he's a fantastic director. I think everything that oh, you yeah. see in this film is very intentional and is staged exactly as he wants it, right down to those kind of like weird VHS kind of graphic mm-hmm. Roman yeah. soldiers raping nuns as an albino snake, you know, starts to gnaw off Jesus's arm on the crucifix. Like it gets crazy. It gets weird. But I think he's railing against the establishment um, of, of, of British cinema. And I think Hugh Grant is one of the things, I mean, of course, Capaldi is, is kind of the, the meat of this film, but Hugh Grant has a really interesting role. He, He had said later that he was so embarrassed by it, but when he had finally watched it years later, he was laughing. Because he is the he is the stiff upper lip. He is the yeah. he is the British kind of humdrum. Just you know, everyone else is beneath him. Even though he's kind of like, you know, hey, I'm cool with everybody. But he never, for a moment, yeah. fails to remind you, whether verbally or not, that he owns all the land that everybody's on. He kind of gallivants from place to place. He picks up, kind of poor women, you know, and, and has all of these dalliances that, cause these women are just kind of glamorized by his, his wealth. Um, uh, and, uh, he, he does feel like, oh, well, he's the one that is of course going to solve all this. Uh, and he, one of the things I love about the movie is he really doesn't, he goes off on this really weird, like we're going to gas the worm out and I'm going to get a whole bunch of peons to carry all this equipment up and I'm going to tell them where to put it. <laughs> Meanwhile, yeah. it's Capaldi and a hand grenade that really take care of everything here. Um, and I kind of love it. I I think also it, 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 there's a lot of we will be talking about a director who uh, specializes in dreams uh, in, a, in, a, in a little bit. But uh, for my money, one of the best dream sequences I think I've ever seen on film is in Layer of the White Worm. And it's the really weird dream sequence where Hugh Grant goes into a painting and then turns oh. out to be on an airplane where two of the lead females <laughs> then wrestle each other and his marker and I know John you and I talked about this as he's watching he has a marker that slowly rises from his pants it is such and then he leaves the airplane and he's in the cave and he's in the labyrinth and it's crazy and it's hilarious and it's bawdy and it's naughty but one of the things I loved about it was more so than almost any other 
film that does dream sequences, this felt like a dream I've had where you inexplicably are going from one place to another and there's no logical sense and things happen that are tied up to your desires or your your pains or your paranoia. Um, I think it's a blast. And then again, I'm not going to get off of this. When I was watching it for the first second, the movie opens and you're in the bed and breakfast and you see this very Scottish dressed person face obscured, you know, digging in the ground. And I thought for sure, I looked at that hair and went, Oh, Hugh Grant. And then he pops up and I'm like, Peter Capaldi, you stole Hugh Grant's hair. It is, (laughs) it is luscious. It is bouncy. It is vibrant. It is a character unto itself. Um, I, I don't know what else you do with a movie that has this many dildos <laughs> and oh a God. guy who fends off vampires with a bagpipe. I, it's, it's only Ken Russell can come up with this stuff and make it work and not seem stupid. <laughs> it's so I put this in my, uh, my letterboxed review and I'll probably talk about it later when I eventually write about this movie. It feels like a hammer movie. That's just gone off the rails. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like Ken Russell didn't grow up with hammer movies. Cause obviously I think he was like in his thirties when those were big and he was already directing movies, but it feels like he kind of always wanted to make one. And then he made this, which, uh, Oh, it's I don't think I'm with you, Chris. It's kind of like camp, but I'd say it's more ton in cheek. Like, it's just like it's so funny and intentionally. So, like, yes, Peter Capaldi lures a bunch of these snake vampires out with his bagpipes in full Scottish regalia as he's just like going around this house. It's so good. It's so funny. (laughs) This might be the first movie that like the vampire fangs look very different than any other vampire movie that I've really seen. I love the look that they give to people who are bitten. Mm -hmm. Just these huge, I mean, they look like snake fangs, which is a really interesting way to do this kind of a vampire film or vampire film, if you want to pronounce it correctly. Uh, But that was, you know, there are those kind of indelible, um, indelible visual touches that I think really make this a lot of fun. I did watch Gothic right after this, um, which I think may have been the film right before this in terms of his filmography. And Gothic does a lot of the same things, not as successfully as this film does. I I, I think this is a pure distillation of what he is shooting for in horror. um, And it's definitely worth a watch if you've never seen it. I speaking of visual treats and speaking of things that are funny, I mean, this is a perfect uh, way for us to uh, talk, start talking about the real star of this movie, who is Amanda Donahoe. Um, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. If not, apologies uh, as Lady Sil- Sylvia Marsh. Um, she is the she is the antagonist of this movie. And as Dan is currently miming the chef kiss uh, action right now, <laughs> it could not be like she like my first thought is this is how many years before Sharon Stone and Basic Instinct? Like yeah. this is like this is it's just uh, absolutely like three years, three, four yeah. years. Yeah, it, it, that, yeah. it, the the, the way to the way to it, she just effortlessly commands everything around her. Um, when she is on screen uh is astounding it's uh and and they use that to amazing effect most notably to uh <laughs> in, in the in in a scene where a a young man uh who probably is in his mid teens i would assume dressed like a boy scout uh finds himself seduced uh by 
uh, Lady Sylvia, and he absolutely thinks he's going to get some, and she definitely doesn't discourage that thought, uh, right up until the point where she <laughs> he's sitting in a pool, and she asks him to, you know, all right, let's get it out, let's see it. And uh, she then, the, the vampire, the snake fangs come out, and she goes down and bites him in the dick, which paralyzes him completely, and then she uses her heel to push him under the water and kills him. <laughs> this is quite possible, like, you, like, absolutely, Peter Capaldi stealing Hugh Grant's hair deserves to be, like, a full half of this conversation, but I say the other half of this conversation needs to be about how Amanda Donahoe uh, paralyzes a Boy Scout in the dick and th- by, in order to kill him. And I Discuss. think there's a so there's a small piece of that truly wonderful sequence that you failed to admit uh, that you omitted that I would point out, which is the only reason why she uses her heel to sink him under the water is because there's a knock at the door and she's distracted from what she's trying to do. And she is so arrogant and so like <laughs> powerful oh, that God. she just, oh, <laughs> let me go an- answer the door, you, and then heals him into the bottom. It's like a hot tub or a pool. I, I don't know what it is. The house is very weird, but just her complete <laughs> lack of like concern at all. It, she, it, it is now like your food. You're pushing your dinner aside to go deal with whatever you have to deal with. Uh, she is fantastic. Uh, she, she is probably the other MVP, you know, by a wide margin. Um, the, 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 the piece where she's in full makeup, uh, is stunning. Uh, she looks incredible. She looks like no other vampire I had ever seen. Uh, if you do go to Cinema Duel, it's the header for my review of the film. Uh, uses that sexuality. I think the comparison to, to Sheridan Stone is very apt. Um, she wears a disturbing amount of um, strap-ons in this film. <laughs> and, and again, I want to harp on that as well. I don't think I've... Look, I've seen porn that didn't have this many strap-ons in it. Uh, Russell knows what provokes. He knows what makes people uncomfortable. And he is he is not, not gently poking all of those areas in this film. It's a delight. I'm liking it more as we talk about it. Like, I need to give it maybe another half a star as we have this discussion. It's it's just so much fun. Um, it is so like she is totally tuned into Ken Russell's wavelength. So she's just the perfect star for this movie. She knows exactly what he's going for, and I and it. She's just so much. She just chews the scenery in such a fun way. She just owns every scene she's in. It's great. And and if and if not to belabor the basic instinct comparison too much because I don't think it holds that much water. But if you think about how Michael Douglas thinks oh, right. he, he basically Michael Douglas is the sort of thinks he's the uh, Im, uh, he's the unstoppable train going up against the immovable force of Sharon Stone. Like think of Hugh Grant as yeah. <laughs> as is in his sort of like attitude of yeah I know what I, I'm. I'm military, I'm British, you know, all, all that shit. I know what I'm doing. I can handle this. Goes right up and, you know, c- collides against the thing he very much cannot handle. <laughs> yeah. And shock, the upper class is completely um, ill-prepared and uh, not able to execute on their plan. It's up to the <laughs> it's up to the poor, you know, archaeologist student and uh, bed and breakfast owners to save the day from this uh, rampant threat. <laughs> Or do they save the day? Because there's the there is the hilarious oh oh twist of an ending 
which plays like the dumbest joke, but because of the tone of the film, the joke works perfectly. It's so good. The doctor's like, yeah, this is so... Can I spoil it for people who have not seen this movie? Go for it. Spoiler for a 1988 film, although I yeah. I will say Sorry, this... it's on all the streaming stations yeah. for free. Check it out. It's great. Yeah. So, uh, spoiler for a 35-year-old movie. Uh, at some point, Peter Capaldi thinks that he has created an anti-venom because if you are bitten by this snake lady, you become a snake person yourself. So, he thinks he takes an anti-venom. He gets bit. He goes to fight her off. They think everything's done. And then the hospital calls. Mr. Capaldi, we gave you arthritis medication. It's totally useful, totally useless for snake bites. I hope you're okay. We'll send you the real one tomorrow. (laughs) And uh, the movie implies at the end that Peter Capaldi has become a snake person. (laughs) And is about to eat Hugh Grant, right? Aren't they in the car? He's licking his lips as the movie ends. He's like... Mm. <laughs> delicious delicious film yeah. maybe that's how you know we've been talking about how peter capaldi steals hugh grant's hair but i'm wondering if the hair is originates with capaldi and then hugh grant needing to stop uh peter capaldi somehow <laughs> in the process uh usurps peter capaldi's hair and then becomes famous with it <clears throat> this is the theory i'm will this is the conspiracy theory i want to entertain someone get me the original draft of four weddings and a funeral let's see if anything was left out that may speak to the connective tissue between the two films excellent this has been a fantastic discussion of a movie that makes absolutely no sense to me um and yet is a delight it i would i would define this almost as the perfect vibes based movie uh um if you if you don't especially care about what the mechanics of anything in particular that's happening it's a it's an absolutely great time uh any final thoughts oh i would say apparently it's based on one of the worst horror novels ever written as I was reading the Wikipedia entry for the Bram Stoker book. Which is weird because uh, Dracula is a fantastic right. uh, novel by Stoker, but I'll admit it's the only thing of his I've ever read. So this one could be terrible. <laughs> you, you almost wonder if that, if that somehow like forms part of the, uh, like the guiding principle for Ken Russell making this movie of this novel sucks. Let's just, yeah. let's do something. Let's try and make it interesting. Yeah, yeah it could be. But uh, that will probably do it for us for now. Uh, Why don't we move on to our next uh, movie for the episode, which is The People Under the Stairs. The People Under the Stairs is a 1991 movie directed by Wes Craven, uh, director of, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, a whole bunch of things. He's a legend. Um, And I'm sure we'll spend at least some amount of time today talking about how this fits into our love and appreciation for the works of Mr. Craven. Um, Real quick, the the plot, uh, the premise of this movie is that a uh, a pair of... uh, uh, Robbers are breaking into this house, uh, followed by uh, a, a young boy that's going with them, and they get trapped uh, inside the house. Uh, and 
insane shenanigans follow from there as they try to sort of make their way out. Obviously, we'll talk about a lot more about who these people are, what their relationship is to each other and the, you know, the larger movie. Um, but I think I want to start off my thoughts on this movie, which is a, I, I had, this is my, uh, first time watching this movie. I don't think I've seen too much Wes Craven, uh, I don't even know if I've actually seen uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, but I will say off the top with no, no other points of comparison, this is a mo- unlike the last movie where it's insane with a plot that makes no sense. This is a movie that is insane with a plot that makes sense. And so to, to me, uh, as much fun as I had with The Lair of the White Worm, uh, People Under the Stairs, I think might actually be my choice for this episode as far as the movie that just like absolutely... Uh, blew my mind because the 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 insanity to, that it, that escalates within uh the house that they're that the, that our protagonist is trapped in is just absolute madness to the point that i was laughing and keeping up like an ongoing commentary uh with the two of you last night when i watched it um what is your takes on the insanity of this movie I'll go first because uh, I, I think Dan's going to have a lot to say. I, I know he has a special place for this this film. Um, I think I think the insanity it's it, it's it's not as insane to me as it may be to you. Uh, the thing that really struck me about this is. <clears throat> At its heart, this is 1,000% a fairy tale. This is a young hero's journey to go save a damsel in distress at the top of a tower tower who's being guarded by a wicked stepmother. It's not really the stepmother, but the analog is exactly the same. There are monsters that aren't really monsters, and that comes to light, but that's what this is, and that's what I really love about the movie, that Craven uses that framework to tell a story that is really all about Craven's preoccupations at the time, which um, if you were around uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, Reaganomics, and it went from Reagan to Bush. This is a movie that is heavily critical of capitalism, heavily critical of, you know, kind of the, the one percenters. Uh, it is it is it is everything that Craven has typically kind of railed against, but put into this fairy tale like fable. Um, his knack for visuals is still top notch. There are sections of this movie that I love. Um, right in the opening sequence, um, Alice is going to be what we can only assume is horribly punished for losing a fork. And you see a ghoulish hand come out of the radiator vent and hand Alice a fork. I think it's such a beautiful visual way to tell you a lot about this story um, and a lot about what to expect when you actually do meet the people under the stairs. I love all of that. Uh, What I don't love is that this movie feels very indebted to another movie about a young person trapped inside a house, uh, and that is Home Alone. And I think my biggest problem with the people under the stairs is this this movie is not funny. It tries to be funny, and when it's not trying to be funny, some of the humor works, but it's intentional kinda jive talking, this is how a 40 or 50 year old white guy writes black characters talking, man, it it did not age well for me. <laughs> so I have to push aside all of the kind of jive shuck talking, young boy kind of whipping off one-liners as things happen and just focus on the story itself, which I think is incredibly strong, possibly one of the strongest of Craven's career. He did write this himself as well. Um, 
but I am I am ultimately brought down by how cringy some of the comedy is and how he represents this is going to sound weird, but how he represents like the tenement and the black people, it is so broad. It is such a stereotype. Ving Rhames might as well have stepped out of a fear of a black hat. <laughs> like it just looks, it just <laughs> doesn't work for me. Uh, but like, it's not parody. It's not in a way that is cloying. Like everything feels intentional and, and pure of heart and with good intentions. But it's a little cringy. Uh, it's a little cringy. When it sticks to just what it's trying to do, I think this might be, and I know, Dan, you have a different view of it. I, I, I think this might be one of his top films in terms of trying to execute on these things. Um, but, man, I don't know. Jive talking, oh, shucking fool. <laughs> he sometimes grates on my nerves. This was my second time seeing this movie. This is far and away um, as Chris hinted at this is far and away my favorite Wes Craven film. Um, I'm going to probably get flack for this. Wes Craven is not one of my top horror directors. Um, I do like Nightmare on Elm Street. I like New Nightmare. I like a couple of the Scream entries, but I don't like The Hills Have Eyes. I will never forgive him for making a terrible Swamp Thing movie. One of my favorite comic book characters of all time. Uh, <laughs> but The People on the Stairs is really interesting. Um, it's funny you mentioned the Home Alone aspect, Chris, because uh, that's in Nightmare on Elm Street. Nancy absolutely uh, Home Alone traps Freddy Krueger at the end of that movie, and he's done the Home Alone trap uh, not uh, trope a couple of times in his movies, so it doesn't feel as weird to me here. I do agree with you. There are a lot of broad strokes like... Everett McGill looking like David Byrne and he's constantly just looking bug-eyed every time he gets hit in the crotch or something. Uh, See, it's more that. I have no problem yeah. with the mechanic of booby trapping and stuff like that. That's absolutely yeah. fine. It's the constant right. mugging and right. like, uh-oh, got this guy now and then go like run something else. Yeah, it's that. It, that drives yeah. me up Everett McGill is very broad in this movie <laughs> to be polite. Um, but that said, um, I think there's a lot of interesting things going on here that I feel are more timeless than they are in other Wes Craven movies. The commentary on the 1% has aged wonderfully. Um, Jordan Peele has said this is one of his favorite movies, and you can see why. Yeah, um, It's very much a fairy tale, but it's a fairy tale that acknowledges that fairy tales can be scary. Fairy tales can be monstrous um and it also ties into so much american mythology whether it's intentional or not like the house feels like it's inspired by the serial killer hh holmes who had turned his own house into like a murder weapon um it feels like that there um and it's just i think this is again his most timeless film because of its themes that just constantly resonate versus some of his other movies and it's it feels like the movie that he had been trying to make for years, and he finally gets the studio funding to just make this incredible film that says all of these things. Because after this movie, he starts going into like meta slashers like New Nightmare. He does all the Scream films, and he doesn't get to do something this weird and exploit rooted in his exploitation film roots ever again after this movie. Yeah, that's a great point. This feels like that cutoff. Uh, and I'm yeah. with you. I, I prefer this over all of the screams and kind of metafiction stuff he does. Yeah. Um, I, lo I love the idea. And I didn't 
think about it until you just brought it up. Kind of the American mythology stuff, the H.H. Yeah. Holmes stuff, definitely. Also, like the this is how many times have you heard the story about the old couple who have you know gold coins locked in the basement? Yeah. That is such a such an American folklore kind of thing. Yeah, um, all that stuff is well, fantastic. Yeah, especially since it's supposed to have been inspired by at least have some root in a real thing, which is that, yeah. you know, people who tried to break into a house discovered that there were kids locked in the, in the, in the house was, was a, yeah. was apparently a real thing that happened. Um, <clears throat> Chris, I, I liked the commentary on the, the broadness of, you know, let's say Ving Rhames most, yeah. mostly, um, and also Everett McGill. But I feel like f- for me, my, one of my big entry points into this movie is of course, uh, uh, the fact that we have Ed and Nadine from Twin Peaks as oh, yeah. our central uh, antagonist of the movie. That's and the coup of this film, is that yeah. they recognize the success, realize how good those two were together, Everett McGill and Wendy Roby. Because in Twin Peaks, they're absolutely that, like, they're, there's absolutely eccentricities at work in that, but it's usually to like charming and delightful ends. And here that, that, that excent, those eccentricities are ratcheted up to like extreme, extremely hostile ends. Are you um, saying that you don't believe that Nadine makes a big Ed Hurley dress up in a gimp suit? <laughs> uh, I do want to point out there's no uh, blinds in this house. So uh, Nadine hasn't perfected her silent, running blinds <laughs> that's why she keeps the people under the stairs <laughs> I, I was i was so trying to figure out how to make a blinds joke here and i just i thank you thank she's, you for the whole the point is she's one. rendering human fat to make those things quiet <laughs> we should talk I'll, about john because i because i want to know what you think about uh about the titular people under the stairs <laughs> it's not like i would want like a modern like lore heavy exploration into the every single person under the stairs but i did uh, there's a like aside from uh aside from our one roach uh, yeah roach Roach. aside from roach who gets a name yeah everyone else is just kind of like wondering what happened to him after those got milk commercials (laughs) (laughs) apparently they didn't pay that well (laughs) no i i the yeah aside from roach the the everyone else it works sort of as like a a, a plot device, but I didn't find myself that, uh, um, but they're more conceptual, I guess, in terms of what they represent. Uh, uh, I do want to, uh, I, I do want to circle back when we talked about the house, the thing about the house, like the way that all like the, the locks are, uh, the, the, everything's locked from the outside and all the doors and windows are reinforced. Like they, the, when, our protagonists get trapped in the house or when they find themselves needing to escape, like they're doing smart things of like trying to get out of the house. Like they're doing all of, they're not making dumb mistakes. And the more that they find that every single possible means of escape is, is been thought of and accounted for and uh, defended against that to me is one of the most like, I mean, obviously, aside from Everett McGill in a gimp suit and a shotgun, uh, one of the most like arresting things that happens in the movie for me, because not only does it put our protagonist immediately in danger, but also sort of signifies like, why is this thing so heavily reinforced to keep people from leaving? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that was uh, in, in a from from a scary perspective. Like, I again, I I, I do think that the, the, the whole shotgun David Byrne 
Ronald Reagan stuff is is it's insane, but it works pitch perfectly with the movie. Um, but yeah, the the house itself, I th- especially with its state of just absolute like squalor and like these these people are ostensibly insanely rich because they own everything, right? That's part of the whole metaphor. But the actual place where they live is just is is nightmarish to behold. Yeah, it also feels stuck in the past because all of their like furniture, all of the decorations are so early 20th century like it it's like they've been passed down these things and they're not going to buy anything new or modern like the only modern things in the house are like the traps like the electrical system but everything else is just so old it's very it feels very victorian very edwardian because they talk about how this house was originally like a funeral home where they sold cheap coffins it's it's very interesting that like they're so rich but they they're so cheap in what they do other than like the security of the house. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll, I'll go one further with that. I I, I think it's very intentional it, it, to bring yeah. it back to like all the Reaganomics and all that right down to them calling each other mommy and daddy. Right. Yeah. Ronald was always calling Nancy mommy. Um, but uh, the, the house represents the olden days, the days that yeah. they want to solidify and keep in, in stone and not let, right, these tenements culturally develop and, and take over. Things have to stay. The status quo has to be maintained. And if I've got to take a bunch of this was done in 1991, I don't know why the people under the stairs all remind me of grunge rejects. But if we have to take all of these long haired freaks and stick them in our basement, we're going to. I was so. going to joke. They're all the people that got kicked out of Megadeth by Dave Mustaine. <laughs> <laughs> It was the extras I, from the film Singles. I think Singles came right. out at the same time, right? <laughs> I, I I did find myself sort of also affected by the fact that for for as as extreme to the point of silly as some of the 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 villain stuff gets, the, the fact that there's like this is and that like this is a movie where you were making the protagonist a young child. Uh, yeah. Like I I did find I I thought that was an incredibly effective. Uh, decision uh, to just have this young child just competently go up against, you know, psychotic raving madmen. Is- well, it's funny. Yeah. It's competently, but it, it, and this is another strength of the film, um, never seems out of the realm of what a newly minted 13 year old would do. Right, it's not yeah. like Fool has the intelligence of a of a you yeah. know, secret service, you know, Navy SEAL. He's a kid. And he does kid things right down to, again, the very Home Alone sequence where they climb to the top of a chimney. Everett McGill sticks his head in the yeah. chimney. They drop a brick on his head. I mean, it, you know, right down to that. But nothing is out of range of what a kid would yeah. do. And the other thing that I'll, I'll just point out real quickly, because um, we've kind of talked about Everett McGill. I love him, uh, and I think there are moments in here where he is great. Like when he flashes out for the first time in the gimp suit with the shotgun, it's terrifying. Yeah. It's such a, an abrupt moment. Um, but he is kind of large and buffoonish. Wendy Roby, on the other hand, is phenomenal. She is devastatingly wicked in this movie um, and doesn't have to do much to convey it. I, I think she's she's tuned into what's doing it, but she's giving a much less kind of dramatic performance and i think it's chilling I, I i think she's one of the best things in the film yeah i'd say that, that yeah i think by by virtue of his buffoonery i think everett mcgill ends up sort of playing more as the henchman whereas yeah. uh wendy roby is just like like on point laser focused we're going to do 
<clears throat> nasty, terrible things for such, you know, flagrant offenses as, you know, dropping a fork or whatever the fuck. A uh, neat bit of trivia uh, for anyone who read the Wikipedia. So Alice, uh, played by A.J. Langer, uh, is now like royalty. She is the Countess of Devon. <laughs> so you yes. haven't seen her in a <laughs> lot of things. And I remember seeing her when the film came out. I was like, oh, I really like this this girl. Uh, she's she's very pretty. She is, she is very capable. She's asked to do she's asked to do a lot of stuff in this film that is kind of hard for a young woman to do. And I'm like, oh, I wonder what else she did. Where else have I seen her? And apparently she didn't do too much else uh, because she got married and became the Countess of Devon. <laughs> she was in my so-called life, but that was probably bigger for me than it was for you, Chris. <laughs> oh, I was, yeah, I was already in my 20s and yeah. graduated college <laughs> at that point. She was an escape from L.A., so she she has the distinct honor. Oh, that's honor right. She's the president daughter. <laughs> of being in a John Carpenter film and a Wes Craven film, which is which is high, high praise in my book. Even if it is ostensibly the worst John Carpenter film. <laughs> I don't know. Have you seen the whole? Oh God, what's the one? Where the the last one he oh, actually the directed. I, I haven't seen the, the ward. ward. Yeah, I haven't. It's seen It's really that. bad. Like I'm so, like at least Escape from L.A. feels like a John Carpenter movie. The ward is just <laughs> terrible. Like it's just so nothing. I. Uh... If we're talking about side characters, uh, yeah. I don't have anything in that in depth to talk about, but my brain is uh, so <laughs> thoroughly broken that I both excitedly put in the group chat when I noticed uh, Jeremy Roberts, uh, uh, who plays the other, the, who plays the first of the robbers to get got, um, because he plays a nameless officer in one of the Star Trek sequels. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, John. Even were you not suffering from COVID, your brain is still wired to pick up on the most subtle of Star Trek and or Babylon. Anyone 5. who's been in, well, and, and then one of the one of the cops plays a minor character in Babylon Five as well. So like, anytime <laughs> any of those people show up, I'm just like, oh, it's that guy for Babylon. Or like, I will sometimes spend hours being like, where did I see that person? Where did I see that person? And the answer almost every single time is some 90s ass sci-fi that i watched a lot as a kid <laughs> every time you notice that j michael straczynski sheds a single tear well i think yeah. unless we have any final thoughts on uh on this movie i had an absolute blast with it uh i do accept uh the uh, criticisms uh that are there but i still uh had a whale of a good time with it and i think that uh it would be worth watching if you want to uh ruin two characters from Twin Peaks for the rest of your life, I guess. <laughs> no, I, I don't think it ruins it. How, how dare you, sir? They're, they're delicious in, in this. This, this movie's a, a blast. If you know nothing about it, like I think I caught it once on cable as a kid and saw parts of it. I'm like, what am I watching? And even as an adult, I'm just like this, what am I watching? And as I said, Craven's not one of my guys. I think some of his symbolism, symbolism is very surface level. Like, having a lead in a movie called Poindexter Fool is just maybe a little too, a lot of it symbolism's a little too on the nose, but for this movie, I think it works because it's such a simple story that just, and it says so much with it. And I think it says a lot, uh, and makes an excellent double feature, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about with our next film, which is Candyman.
So Candyman was my choice for one of the criteria of Hooptober, and that criteria was watch a horror movie that came out when you were 10. So Candyman oh, was... Oh, you just yeah. hurt my feelings. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Well, and... How about when you were 20? Is that okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. When I was 20. <laughs> minus 10. <laughs> but yeah, that was my criteria for that. Um, For that. That was my movie for that criteria. And that was a movie that just, I remember when that movie came out and it just like, Tony Cod looked, looked really scary. And I remember like the trailer for it with um, Virginia Madsen crawling out of that mouth with the graffiti and the whole, like there's so many images I remember from the trailer of that movie that are just burned into my mind. So I've seen this movie many times. It's one of my favorites. It's a top three slasher movie for me for a variety of reasons. Um, but to to sum up the movie, uh, the movie centers on, well, sort of centers on Helen Lyle, a graduate student for the University of Illinois. She stumbles on the urban legend of a character called Candyman, um, or a figure, I should say, called Candyman, who has killed people in the ghetto, in the poorer areas of Chicago. And one day she learns that it may be in the infamous Cabrini Green projects. So she goes there and she gets attacked by somebody calling themselves the Candyman. I probably summoned them already. Um, <laughs> that's the other thing is that you have to say this just like Bloody Mary. You have to say this figure's name five times to summon them. You say it into a mirror and this figure is supposed to appear. Um, she does she does find somebody who's using the myth to kill people or keep, you know, keep the projects under their control. Um, they get them arrested. And then one day she's in a parking lot and somebody calls to her and it is Candyman himself. This movie is just it's a phenomenal horror film. I think it's one of the best, if not the best horror movies of the 90s. It still just it scares the shit out of me. Um, Tony Todd gives one of the all-time greatest movie monster performances as this charismatic spirit that just that kills. He beckons for Helen Lyle. It's and Virginia Madsen's also really great in this movie. And it says so much about America, about white privilege, about um gentrification, how we just bulldoze the past. There's so much that goes on in this movie, and I'm so glad that we're talking about it on this podcast. Yeah, this was one yeah. where uh, I wanted to point out something. I think I even quoted you in my yeah. review of the film. Uh, you had yeah. the perfect kind of summary of, of this. This is kind of a movie about being a tourist. Like, yeah. you know, being that, that whole sense of white privilege, being a tourist yeah. into the seedier sections and assuming that there's no cost to doing that. And this movie is yeah. all about the cost of doing that. It's wrapped in yeah. the flavor of a supernatural gothic, which is another term yeah. you would use really well, um, like a gothic horror film, even though it takes place kind of in the... the it's in broad daylight. So it's in broad daylight. Is, it's, it, it's in Chicago. Yeah. It's in the projects, yeah. right? It's... it's Half of this is the performances. Um, yeah. The only thing that I would change about what you said is um, uh, I think Virginia Madsen, I think this is one of the best kind of, not final girl, but this is one of the best kind of female protagonists yeah. of the 90s for horror. I mean, maybe oh, yeah. even greater. She is she is a 
goddamn force of nature in this movie. Uh, like only 30 years old, I, I think, when this came out. Yeah. Uh, she is gorgeous. She is smart. She is psychotic when she needs to be. Uh, she has to do a lot with this, whereas Tony Todd just has to be one of the most singular presences in horror in the last 40 or 50 years, right? Easy yeah. job for him. He just needs to yeah. He's know, got that be a voice. legend. He has that incredible voice, that incredible physical charisma. When he says, like, it is one of those incredible, just per when people say perfect line deliveries, when he says, Helen, be my victim, like, you kind of want to be his victim. Like, it's so seductive. And... So I read about like a proposed sequel to this movie, which would have taken place in the past. And they bring up Dracula and something that and that's where my interpretation of this as a gothic slasher comes from is this movie borrows from the structure of Dracula. Helen Lyle is more or less both Jonathan Harker and Mina Murray. She Tony Candyman is Dracula. They the Cabrini being. Cabrini Green projects, that's Castle Dracula. And the movie follows that structure where she goes to Castle Dracula, comes back, she's more or less kind of okay, but she brings that back into the city with Chicago itself, which would be London. And then there's, of course, the chase back to Castle Dracula to save the child that takes place at nighttime, which, like, and it's such a brilliant use of that structure for this movie and just also going into the predatory ways that white people are abusing it i could talk about this movie all day yeah it's a it's cultural appropriation commodification yeah. i mean it's it's mm -hmm. all of that beautifully yeah. beautifully executed i mean yeah. man bernard rose holy yeah. cow <laughs> I, I think this is some Bravera filmmaking, especially yeah. for horror. You can see right. why we talked about Jordan Peele when it came to People Under the Stairs. Fingers yeah. crossed he's still producing a remake of that film. But you yeah. can see what he took to Candyman for when he and um, Nia DaCosta, yeah. I, I think. Right. right. Yeah. Nia DaCosta. Crafted their their sequel uh, literally yeah. on the bones of this film but rose right. is a gorgeous Just, filmmaker beautiful overhead oh shots my God. Um, oh yeah all the incredible tracking shots there's one mm -hmm. shot that i call out in the review where um there's mm -hmm. a huge one where she runs through the apartment yeah. but to me the most impressive one was rose knows a good face when he sees it so he focuses mm -hmm. on madison's face as she's being wheeled away in a mental yeah. asylum and just the confusion the pain of because she she woke up she oh, yeah. blacked out now she's in a hospital she doesn't know what's going on he uh, directs the hell out of this movie and it, oh, it's man. to its benefit and i think something that's also to his benefit is that he's a british director directing a Amer what looking as an outsider on American culture and saying things that maybe an American who wouldn't see these things because we're so ingrained to what we are, what we see around us every day. He sees these things and he comments on them and he brings it into a horror movie that it's incredibly smart, but it has no problem being a horror movie. Like it's not a shame to be a genre film. Like it's bloody. It's horrific. But it's also really good. It's just so well done. 
I especially appreciate your bringing out the Dracula thing because it's not yeah. just the structure of Dracula. It also, yeah. to me, evokes the um, it evokes uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the the Coco yeah. movie, because because it's not just that she's uh, Mina Harker; it's that she's also in the in the movie. They add the subplot of uh, Mina being the reincarnation of his dead lover, yes. which is something that's not in yeah. the book but is in the right. movie, and they actually. <clears throat> that gets used here too in a way but, that really like so really what's interesting helped. is they both came out the same year 1992 so that's an interesting interesting to note that and it may be that that script was the dracula script was floating around hollywood but yeah it it is an interest i hadn't even thought about that and uh yeah the i mean we yeah. we've already talked about the the tony todd and how magnificent he is uh i I didn't consciously plan this, but based on the previous movie and how we talked about how my brain is broken, guess why I watched this movie? Uh, because Tony Todd uh, had a recurring role in Star Trek The Next Generation as Warp's brother, Warp's Kern. <laughs> of course. I was, of course. I was, so I was, I was like, is this what John's going to bring up? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 he's great. Like he's not he's not in a lot of the show, but he does show up here and there, and he is fantastic. And so I was like, oh, I'm excited to see Worf's brother in a horror movie. Um, and and but but of but of course, like this is like he, like by leaps and bounds the more compelling and memorable iconic thing. Like sure, like in when whenever Tony Todd departs to the next realm, uh, his obituaries will say obviously Candyman. And then, and then Kern. And then like Warp's brother. <laughs> yeah, in, and then Warp's brother. In the two brother. minutes that you brought right. it up, I had already forgotten his name. <laughs> I remember it, John. I know who you're talking but about. But I'm glad it's... No, I knew it was Warp's brother. That's all that I remembered. I have one small issue with the film, and I, I almost felt like Bernard did as well. I don't love yeah. the... At the end, Helen saves the child. Yeah. It seems... It feels so weird, but... I love what comes out of that because out of that kind of white savior, I have saved the baby, you know, yeah. um, it cuts then to my own, probably one of my favorite parts of the film, which is the funeral, which is entirely devoid of any attendance except for um, yeah. Trevor. Just the, <laughs> what a heart. We could talk about Trevor too. Well, I do want to talk about Trevor. He is. Uh, although I, his name is now escaping me for some stupid. Xander Berkeley. Yes, Xander, Xander Berkeley. Berkeley. I love Xander Berkeley, but he's such a dirtbag in this movie. Uh, <laughs> he Stacey, gaslights her so hard. Oh, he does. <laughs> but then, like, all of Cabrini Green comes to the thing. Yeah. And at first it feels like they know who the true hero was because she killed the Candyman. But that's not what happens at all. They look over her grave and the young boy throws the hook into the ground and they just silently walk away in in condemnation of what this woman had brought back yeah. to the projects. It is such a chilling Except for the stupid ending at the end, it is such a yeah. chilling. I wish they had ended the movie there because I also hate the tag at the end of the movie. And I, I, it, I don't think it plays true for me. I get where the tag comes from. And the other thing, like me watching it last night, because Tony Todd, there's so many lines in the movie where the Candyman is like, 
we are going to my congregation is coming to see us like that final scene with them at the funeral feels like her congregation to begin her myth as like a spiritual killer and i get why they put the tag like to show that she has become what she has you know she was studying now she has become that like it's kind of like the uh the end of the werner herzog nosferatu where uh bruno gans becomes a vampire himself yeah it's it's almost a monkey paw twist right it's always oh now she's the thing that was it is but yeah it is a bit of a gotcha you know well because also the whole structure deserves it (laughs) yeah the the whole structure of the film though also sets up he he can't really die because by him dying and by that hook being there his legend is now larger than ever which is probably why they had countless sequels so it almost kind of felt for me in a way like now we're going to spin it and now the white woman is the person that we're talking about yeah that's fair and i wish i feel like she is her own legend that was the other thing is that she gets her own painting in the in the project in like whatever that hellhole is that they do all the graffiti for candy man which oh man that shot where it's just yeah just like I could just go on on the visuals on this movie alone. <laughs> yeah, the, is, all the yeah. all the shots of people coming out of mouths. Yeah, I, 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 again, I'm too COVID brain to put the thoughts on that together, but I definitely caught it. Of like, there's a lot of mouth stuff in this movie. Yeah, it was un- it was unpleasant. This movie's got a lot of mouth stuff. <laughs> yeah, a lot of bee stuff. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I, oh, I mean. God. Tony Todd, champion and legend for so many reasons, but just the number of bees that man had on him he, is insane. Apparently, he negotiated in his contract because yeah. he knew they were going to do the scene with the bees. He negotiated he would get $1,000 for every sting he got, and he got like $25,000 after the end of that production because of all the bee stings. That is so, such an incredible scene. Like, yeah. talk about doing things the old-fashioned way. How do they do it? Well, they just right. put a bunch of bees on them. <laughs> right. He had a little cup it's, for his mouth. He it, put the bees in the cup so it wouldn't get into his mouth, and then it just poured out. Oh, so disgusting. Oh, man. <laughs> but it looks so good on camera. Like, you can imagine them doing that with CGI, and it just doesn't yeah. give the same effect of the physical objects coming out. Oh, God. I love this movie so much. <laughs> It is great. I'm so glad that we switched up. Uh, yeah. I, I, I originally had, because for me, my right. movie when I was 10 was Psycho 2. <laughs> uh, uh, and Hellraiser was my um, L- LGBTQ uh, and yeah. Clive Barker requirements. Um, this one now satisfied that. I'm so glad. I've seen yeah. Hellraiser to death. Uh, you know, there's stuff to talk about. But I mean, I could watch Hellraiser again, but, but I think I'm glad this we is watched the more, this one. Just, this is it, the meatier film. This is the film with a lot more to chew on. And I think it's a better film, to, to be fair. Uh, I think if, it's the best... I love Clive Barker. I love his books, but I think this is the best adaptation of a Clive yeah. Barker thing. This movie about. just haunts me in a way that like few other movies, few other slasher movies do. Like it just again, it's so many just incredible. We haven't even talked about Philip Glass in this movie. His score is oh, that's phenomenal. Yeah. It is so just good. so so good. And apparently he hates this. He's like, I don't care for this movie, but I did the score, and it's like, dude, if this is just like a toss off for you. Wow, because it's just like it's so haunting. Just cool <sighs> glasses on another level for composers. Yeah. I, I wish we had more of his stuff. Yeah, I will say that if we were, it's it is probably for the best that we didn't talk about Hellraiser. Because guess what? I would be talking about if we were talking about Hellraiser. Oh, no. <laughs> Deep Space Nine, absolutely. <laughs> 
and how everyone's like, are is Bashir and is Bashir and Garrick? Is that are, are they meant to be gay? I I I thought, well, you know, I could see a reading of it. And then when I watched Hellraiser, I was like, oh no, absolutely, that's what this is. <laughs> People, Hellraiser should be a prereq for watching DS9. I feel like, which is not a thing that anyone's ever said, but is true. Well, I'm not going to argue it. They've said um, it now. <laughs> yeah, planting my flag on that one. Well, I think yeah. that has been an absolutely banger set of three movies we've talked about. Why don't we move into our final section for the episode? So for our final segment uh, on this episode, we're going to do our movie recommendations as per usual. Uh, while I have watched a lot of horror movies in the last week as I've been sick, uh, the film I'm going to recommend for this episode is none of those things. It is the polar opposite. Uh, I had the chance to go see a screening of the uh, Talking Heads concert film to stop making sense uh, with my brother who had never, who had outside of listening to having heard, you know, uh, Psycho Killer on the radio had not really listened to any of their music, uh, which is not a com- complaint because b- before watching this movie the first time, I had never heard any of their stuff either. And uh, watching the movie on a big screen uh, and then also watching my brother sort of out of the corner of my eye just progressively just like be won over by it is one of the most like magical movie experiences I've had uh, in a long time. Uh, if I was doing like I, th- I, th- if I have to think about it some more, but I almost think it would be like possibly worth put talking about in terms of like, like sight and sound kind of stuff. I was like, this I could possibly make an argument for putting it up there. It is that fantastic and so amazing. The, 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 the cinematography, the the performances, obviously the quality of the sound itself. It sounds amazing. Uh, it is just one of those special movies and. Uh, I desperately hope they reissue it on home video uh, for uh, so I can watch it on my new TV. <laughs> so uh, I got to see that in IMAX. Uh, I was dancing in the aisles. <laughs> like, people were just... It wasn't a crowded theater, but the people that were there just really appreciated it. I will say I almost put that on my sight and sound list. It was a contender. Um, Thank you. I just, this movie is so just, it's such a phenomenal film. Like Jordan Crenenworth, who direct, who did the cinematography for Blade Runner is the cinematographer on that movie. Just like the blacks and the shadows in that movie are phenomenal. It just, the restoration they did on it is amazing. If you haven't seen it yet, and if you can still see it in a theater, go see it in a theater. It is meant to be seen on a big screen with a killer sound system. What do you got for me, Dan? Yeah, so I'm going to kind of do what Chris did, which is is going to do, which is recommend some of the better movies I've seen while doing my Hooptober, which right now is only up to 12 movies. So I won't recommend any of the ones we've just talked about, but um, and I'm going to recommend one more that I haven't put on my Hooptober. So the first of those is Damien Rugna's Terrified, which is a phenomenal just I wouldn't say reinvention reinvention of the haunted house film but it's a rethinking of it so the premise of the movie is that there is a haunting going on but the haunting is slowly infecting the neighborhood around it from the first house that it happens in and it's about how the community reacts to it it's how they talk to each other about this um haunting and it it's it's so good it's an argentinian film and if you haven't seen it, it's currently on Shutter. I don't want to say too much more because 
this movie scared the shit out of me. Um, I was encouraged to finally see this movie because it came out a couple of years ago because Damien Rugna did a segment in the anthology film Satanic Hispanics, which was the only segment in the movie I just out and out loved about this puzzle solving guy that accidentally in his efforts to figure out how to do he solves like Rubik's Cube competition. He's in Rubik's Cube solving competitions for fun. And in his effort to try to figure out how to do that faster, he accidentally opens a gateway to the dead. Um, <laughs> it's great. That is it's amazing. Pretty great. It's great. Like, <laughs> And there's a scare in there that just, I'm like, and that, there's plenty of them in Terrified. I know, Chris, you've seen it. Yep. Um, there's just so many just still moments in there that are just utterly scary. Like, they just stay in your mind. Um, but he also has a new movie out called When Evil Lurks that I've gotten to see in theaters. Um, it should be coming to Shutter. I think, at the end of the month. Give me a second. Let me... But it's about... it. Just like Terrified isn't necessarily a reinvention of the Haunted House film... This is sort of a rethinking of the possession film as sort of a commentary on the pandemic. Um, it's about these two farmer brothers who discover there's one of the other tenants that one of the people that live on this shack, the oldest son, uh, has become possessed or one of the rotted ones. And the government's supposed to send out people to solve this, but the person that got sent out died. And now they have to get rid of this body before it explodes and possesses other people and it's really terrifying it's really scary it's i i really love demian rugna's sort of naturalistic take on horror where it's very ordinary it's very magical realist and i think that's a really cool perspective to bring into horror these days um so definitely see when evil lurks once it comes out on streaming so now that I've gone through those two, I finally saw Sputnik. Sputnik's a lot of fun. A very it, it made me think of the Quatermass experiment. So if you love the Quatermass experiment, Quatermass in the pit, this will be very much up your alley. Uh, Knife plus heart was phenomenal. Very gay. Um, it does not shy away from gay porn, which it is a movie about a cast, the cast and crew of a gay porn that <laughs> slowly get methodically taken down with by a dude who has a dildo with a switchblade in it. It's great. M83 does the soundtrack. Definitely see it if you haven't seen it. Um, Chris recommended me Alligator, and he knew that I was going to love this movie because it's got <laughs> Robert Forster looking really great. Um, it is funny. There is a man who tries to seduce a woman with an alligator call at one point. It is, it's like a, a Larry Cohen movie that hasn't gone off the rails, but still some of that wackiness that's in there. Um, it's really, it's a lot of fun from the seventies. Um, and a movie that I'm working on review on for cinema duel is it lives inside. Um, it is the debut movie from Bishal Dutta. It is about an Indian American girl who she's sort of ashamed of who she is, and she's trying to fit in with all of her white, um, all of her white students, her um, all of her fellow students. But and that's kind of going well. But one day, one her former friend, who is also Indian American, comes up to her and says, "I need you to help me. I've got there's a monster in this jar." And of course, her friends are in front of her. She doesn't want to embarrass herself with this weird girl who's just looking worse and worse every day. So she slaps the jar out of her hand, and that unleashes a monster called, the, I guess, the Pajash, 
I think that's how it's pronounced, that is hunting and preying on her because it feeds on shame. It's really phenomenal. It talks about Amer- Indian American identity. It's a totally new voice, but there's all the all these also all these incredible shots that feel indebted to filmmakers like Spike Lee and Jonathan Demi, filmmakers you don't necessarily see quoted in horror films. So I think it's really good. It hasn't been talked about as much, but I think it's worth checking out. Where is that? Nice. Is that anywhere to watch right now? Because that sounds great. Um, I don't know if it's streaming yet. It was. I think it just came out of theaters, but once it does, I'll let you guys know. Well, that is quite the uh, feast that you've given yeah. us, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm quite, quite grateful quick. for it. <laughs> Chris, uh, how about yourself? What has been hooping your tober this month? Sure. I'll just briefly talk about three films. Um, one, I think, is fairly well known, but, but two that might have a little less recognition. Uh, but these were probably the MVPs of my marathon so far. I'm 27 films in, so I don't think like the few remaining films aren't going to be anything like unless something really grabs me stellar so I want to focus on these uh, the first one from Indonesia is Satan's Slaves uh, written and directed by Joko Anwar it is ostensibly a remake of an earlier film uh, that is about a family um, living kind of um, hand to mouth uh, they're, they're on the verge of just kind of being uh, completely destitute with a sick uh, sick mother. So there's the father, there's three kids and the very sick mother. Um, she winds up dying. Uh, and as a result of her dying, all of these supernatural things start to take place for this family. And the question is, what is actually happening? Is it, is that, is, is the house where they are haunted? Is, is the ghost of the mother, uh, coming to, to terrorize the family or is something more nefarious at play? And this movie does a lot with very little. Uh, in Indonesian horror, in, 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 in general, it's a locale that, at least for me, I don't have as much familiarity with as I do of, say, like, you know, America or London or any of these other places, even Italy, uh, with all the giallo that I've been watching. Uh, so location is, is fantastic. The culture is fantastic. This is a film that, for the first time, talks about all of these things, at least for me. It's exciting to have these perspectives from a non-Christian viewpoint and see how those get across. And then finally, um, what actually is happening is just great. It's something that you don't see coming. And then when it hits, it, for anyone who hasn't seen this film, the ending is a complete and utter knockout. That sets the stage for um, more to come. So there is a sequel. I saw this on Shutter. I have not seen the sequel yet, but I cannot wait to watch it because this film was very, very affecting. Really enjoyed it. Uh, we are going to travel uh, across to another continent, and we are going to go to Africa, as I have to talk about 2021's Saloon, uh, written and directed by Jean-Luc Herbelot. This is a French-slash-Senegalese um, production. I hope I am saying these things right. Um, this is what happens when Sergio Leone, Quentin Tarantino, and uh, they get together to do like a Ben Weekly folklore horror film. It is a Western, it is a heist film, it is an action film, but it is also first and foremost a horror film that dives into uh, the atrocities of the war that had plagued Senegal and the surrounding areas of Africa uh, for years. Uh, and it is basically about these, these three kind of mercenaries 
that are escorting a drug lord um, out of a occupied um, Guinea-Bissau. Again, my pronunciation is probably going to be terrible. Um, and they get away in a plane. The plane is slowly losing fuel and they have to crash into the region of Saloum in Senegal uh, to make repairs. Or do they? One of the things that's great about the film is besides its very flashy visual style, there's like speed ramping and there's quick close-ups and all this crazy stuff is um, you don't actually know what's happening until about halfway through the film. And maybe this kind of crash landing in Saloon is not as accidental as it appears. So what winds up happening is a confrontation is had. They, they, they were set there quite purposely by one of the members of the mercenaries who is there to um, exact revenge for the atrocities committed on him when he was a child in the war. But by doing so, by exacting that revenge, and you can kind of extrapolate this to kind of uh, Park Chan-wook and, 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 and the old boy series, exacting revenge takes a very heavy toll on everyone. And then soon enough, it turns out that uh, there are all these, these specters and spirits and demons from the earth that are now hunting everyone in that town and what happens as a result of that. It is super exciting. It's got a flair that you don't normally see from a horror film. Um, and it, 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 again, one of the greatest things about Hootober is it forces you, because one of the requirements is always not only see things from different decades, but see things from different countries. It, it, it forces you to kind of broaden your horizons and see different perspectives that you normally wouldn't. And both of the first two films I talked about do exactly that. This is a tremendous amount of fun to check out. So again, also on Shudder. So uh, Shudder subscriptions are dirt cheap. I highly recommend it. Uh, it is one of the few streaming services that truly feels curated as opposed to just we got the license rights to everything from IFC Midnight, so we're going to dump it on there. So yeah, I have to yeah I have to say I'm really excited after seeing Terrified and When Evil Lurks to start getting into South American horror movies because oh, there's a so couple much on good Shutter. stuff. Yeah, that that was yeah. Terrified was it for me when I saw that I said yeah. I need to go deeper here because yeah. there is some crazy shit going on. Uh, and speaking of crazy shit, something that probably uh, more people are familiar with. Um, I don't know about you guys. I love Paddington 2. It is one of my favorite movies, <laughs> just like in that Nicolas Cage, Pedro Pascal movie. Um, but I am not enthused about uh, Paul King's uh, latest Wonka thing because I'm not all that set on Timothy Chalamet. I got to be honest. Thank God I can go back and now remember how amazing he is in Luca Guadagnino's Bones and All, which came out last year. Um, and I have to thank my friend Buke uh, from Nine Circles. He had been bugging me to see this forever. He said it was one of his favorite films. I kept putting it off. I saved it for the marathon. Holy shit. May I say it was my movie of the year last year? Uh, well, <laughs> you guys know personally how, how stingy I am with my stars. Uh, this is it's currently sitting at a four and a half just on my first viewing. I suspect this will make the five star club when I watch it again. And I most certainly will. Uh, what is this movie about? Is this a movie about <laughs> cannibals? Kind of. But it's not a movie about cannibals. It's also a movie about uh, growing up and dealing with changes and... And, and not knowing about the the appetites and desires of your body. Um, you know, it's a Luca Guadagnino film. If you've seen Call Me By Your Name or you've seen his remake of Suspiria, which a lot of people hate, but I really enjoy. Uh, he's all about that. He's all about suppressed desires and appetites. Um, 
I almost was going to put up here Talk to Me, which I also loved and has one of the greatest kind of openings in a horror film in recent memory. But as far as being uncomfortable, that movie does not hold a candle to the first eight minutes of Bones and All, which oh, horrified and terrified <laughs> me so much I had to stop watching, collect myself and put it back on. Um, but this is about a young woman who discovers as she's a teenager that she has an insatiable craving for human flesh, um, acts upon it, and then is on the run. Uh, while she is on the run, she uh, comes across other, they're called eaters. They can sense and smell each other. They have an incredibly sharpened sense of smell. And eventually she falls in with a uh, young guy whose name is, I'm not going to remember, but it is Timothy Chalamet. I forget what his name is, Guy or something like, like, like that. It's Lee. Lee. Lee is his name. Everyone has very short names. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, uh, the woman is played by Taylor Russell, who is fantastic. I first saw her in the Lost in Space reboot and always thought she was the best thing about that show. She is phenomenal here. Her and Lee Chalamet, the Chalamet boy, they go on a cross-country ad adventure just kind of connecting with each other meeting weird characters Dan made mention in his his review yes there is a moment where, Tim, where Timothy Chalamet potentially in a dream sequence or not eats David Gordon Green having heard the terrible reviews for The Exorcist I wish it had happened in real life that's neither here nor there uh, the real terror of this film comes from Mark Rylance holy shit I have never seen a guy so quiet and be so terrifying um, if there was justice in the world his portrayal of kind of the old man eater it it, it it would be right up there with like Candyman for kind of visual terrifying yeah. images um this movie goes places uh with violence and gore that are quite frankly astounding um and it has a a chef's kiss beautiful ending that uses the title of the film to wonderful effect uh so if you have not seen it and you've been holding off uh don't be the schmo that i was do yourself a favor this is one of the best like you said dan uh definitely one of the best horror movies that i've seen this is bar none just one of the best movies that i have seen uh yeah. in the last couple of years it is phenomenal holy crap it was it, good <laughs> yeah People talking about best movies of this decade so far, and this is absolutely one of them. Um, I I still think about this movie. I I've I wrote about it a little when I wrote about my. Uh, it's been kind of astonishing because I went back to call me by your name, and I kind of couldn't get through with it because I'm like, I just want it to be violent. I just want this to be violent. Yeah. <laughs> Between after seeing Suspiria and Bones and all, and I'm just like, this is fine. But when does Timothy Chalamet just start? Or when does Army Hammer actually start eating Timothy Chalamet, yeah. as we know he, he would be likely be doing? Everything that Army but Hammer it, is accused yeah. of in real life happens in Bones and All. In Bones and All, yeah. <laughs> but I, I wrote a little bit about it on Letterboxd, and I think the thing is just, it's so romantic, but it's also disturbing. The, the eaters are as much like hustlers, they're apex pal predators and of course they're serial killers like it, it just taps into so much of that time period uh timothy chalamet wears a this is not a fugazi shirt at one point in the film as uh david, david gordon green wears his uh dock and shirt he also sings and like, dances along to kiss his lick it up oh yes, <laughs> which for yes, him is oh, yeah. like the pinnacle of hard rock oh, heavy metal yes. for the time like, that they're in i think this takes place in the like, 80s sometime so he's just like yeah yeah this song is the best he's like so excited to listen to kiss this is where they took the makeup off um and I, I think I pinpointed the period it was in because I had to figure out 
when did Fugazi form? When was Ronald Reagan still president? And I think it takes place in 1987. Yeah, that would be my guess. Yeah. But it's just like, just like his, um, like his Suspiria remake. I feel like there's so many specific period details. Like it would have been like, there's the joy division and the new order on the soundtrack. But I feel like it would have been so easy, like stranger things to make Timothy Chalamet and Taylor Russell's characters listen to cool music. And I think it's just so of its moment that it makes his character listen, just be so excited for kiss. And then like the dock insurance. Oh like, yeah. It would that yeah. immediately dates like, it because again, yeah. let me bring out my hair metal nerdery uh, back, <laughs> back for the attack came out in 87, I believe. <laughs> so it would be right so, around yeah. there. <laughs> right. And it's, it says so much about America. It says so much, again, another film, like it would probably go well with Candyman. Um, just, Films made by people not from America about America that just speak so much about our country. So, I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate you coming back, Dan, to uh, Thank you. <clears throat> help uh, help us close out the uh, the month of October uh, with all of our spooky shenanigans. If we're tagging uh, on something weird or cult, rest assured, Dan will probably be on the episode. One day I want to be on talking about something not cult, <laughs> but that's probably not going to happen. Um, <laughs> well, we, well, we'll have to put our best minds, uh, best and brightest on that one, uh, solving that question. Uh, but in the meantime, yeah, cinema is where you can go to find all of Chris and Dan's various, uh, reviews covering all the movies that they have and are continuing to watch, uh, for the Hooptober marathon. Uh, in the meantime, Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys, for doing this with me. And stay safe. Keep each other well. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.